Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Kenan Sheldon. He is Curator's Distinguished Professor in the Department of Psychological Sciences at the University of Missouri. His research is in the areas of well-being, motivation, self-determination theory, personality, and po positive psychology. And today we're going to focus on his recent book, Freely Determined, what the new psychology of the self teaches us about how to live. So, Dr. Sheldon, welcome to the show. It's a big pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here with you. So, uh, tell us first, uh, how can we tackle free will from a psychological perspective? Because I would imagine that many people would think that free will is something to be tackled primarily by philosophers. Yeah, well... Actually, free will has been mostly, I, I would say, studied by both philosophers and neuroscientists. Mm -hmm. And um, what I found in reading that literature is um, that the perspective of personality psychology, which I study, was largely missing. And I thought that um, that perspective could add some fresh insight to the debate. And so that was what the book was attempting to do. Mm -hmm. Right. And do you think it's important when it comes to this conversation to distinguish between decisions and the consequences of decisions? And if so, why? Yeah, I think it's very important to distinguish between those because they occur at two different phases of a goal setting process, which I, I want to focus on. And so when we're setting goals, we are trying to um, ask ourselves What's our situation? What do I want? What's going on? And then we get answers from our um, sort of pre-conscious minds, which we can consider and then make a choice among. And then we uh, cross a Rubicon of decision and we say, okay, I'm going to do this. And then we try to do that, whatever it is, that goal. And we may or may not succeed, but um, it, it, that doesn't really matter for the question of whether we were able to make a free choice to attempt uh, that goal in the first place. Um, and actually the the consequences are, are very important because they teach us um, <clears throat> many valuable lessons. They might teach us, no, I didn't really want that anyway. Or they might teach us that was too ambitious. I need to scale down my ambitions or acquire some more skills. So uh, the decision itself and the consequences are part of a linked uh, set of processes, but they happen at very different phases of, um, of that uh, uh, entire process. Mm -hmm. And what would you say are the limitations of determinism as a framework? Yeah. Well, the uh, advantages of it is that it, takes a hardline scientific perspective. It says no wishful thinking. Mm -hmm. We might wish or, or hope that we were free, but uh, really science will someday show that uh, we are not making decisions. Our brains are making decisions and we are just helpless passengers along uh, for the ride. And there is a definite advantage to that point of view because it's the sort of no nonsense perspective that has driven science forward uh, but the disadvantage of that point of view is that uh, it's very disempowering uh, to to the individual who is told to believe that they have no power and no capacity for self-determination. It's also very unproven. Um, 
So as a researcher, what I try to do is collect data in some study and then predict what people will do. And I find that, uh, you know, if I can get a significant effect, P less than 0.05, that's great, but very rarely do my studies account for more than 10% of the variance in what people actually do. And so I think to, to be a determinist is to say that someday uh, we will be able to completely predict what people will do. I mean, that's just implied by the idea that there's no degrees of freedom in our, our decision-making. And I think that's never gonna happen. And a, a large part of why it won't happen is that we are making it up as we go along in a creative way. And um, you have to allow for the uh, existence of a psychological self that is feeling its way through the world uh, and making snap decisions often that are very creative and even transformative that no science could ever predict uh, in advance. That's my opinion. Mm -hmm. You mentioned some of the negative psychological effects that the belief in determinism might have on people, but can it also have, at least in certain instances, some positive psychological effects? I mean, can it serve some sort of function in people's lives to believe in determinism? Yeah, uh, I do discuss that in the book a little bit. And um, I talk about, well, why would somebody believe in determinism? What's the uh, what's the emotional advantage for them? And then uh, one possibility is that it lets them feel smart. You know, they are too too intelligent to be taken in by soft-minded delusions or maybe it uh, lets them feel like uh, what happens is not their doing and so they're not responsible and so this is a, a big connection between free will and responsibility and maybe it's nice not to feel a responsibility especially if you know if you're making bad choices that get you into trouble um, another reason to believe and determinism is um, maybe you just don't want to think about it that hard, or or maybe you just believe that science will get there someday. It's not there yet, but it will, and it's comforting to think that there's some pattern. You might not believe in a, a divine force or deity, but you might believe that there's a, a, a pattern that science will reveal to us, which uh, <clears throat> makes us just another phenomenon like every other phenomenon in the universe. But I'm arguing that we are a, a different kind of phenomenon than has ever appeared to our knowledge. We are a phenomenon that is that has the mental capacity to take stock in the moment um, and then make a decision on the fly based on a, a creative calculation that we make. And I think that's one of our main evolved adaptations as human beings. It was just too much to uh, to have us evolve a bunch of hardwired reactions and and um, reflexes and automatic um, uh, responses for every possible situation. Instead, we needed to <clears throat> evolve the capacity to take stock on the fly and um, figure it out in the moment. And, and I'm actually writing a review article right now <clears throat> where I'm making the very controversial claim that free will is an evolved human capacity. Um, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to convince the evolutionary 
uh, psychologists because they don't like big picture ideas. They like it to be, oh, you have these these mechanisms that evolved back in the Pleistocene era, and you know we're just sort of puppets being driven by these past selection pressures. Um, but I, I don't think that's correct, and I might not be correct. Let me say I'm just nobody really knows the answers to these questions. But I was intrigued by the attempt to flesh out this perspective uh, a little bit more um, in terms of, of, this, of psychology. And what that perspective is, is the compatibilist perspective in philosophy. Uh, actually, 80% of philosophers believe in uh, compatibilism, which is the, the idea that uh, human free will and uh, deterministic causation can exist at the same time. And there's, uh, you know, a lot of sort of tricky um, intellectual work that has to be done to, to address how that can be the case. And my book tries to do some of that work uh, in a fresh way. Mm -hmm. So before we move on to other questions, let me just ask you, I think this is a good point to tackle this question. Um, let's imagine for a second that somewhere in the future, some way scientists or philosophers prove that, prove definitely that determinism is true and that there's no free will at all. For the kind of argument you present in the book when it comes to the psychology of it and its psychological effects, do you think that it would have major implications that it would undermine what you present in the book? Or do you think that maybe we could deal with it as we deal with other things like, for example, believing in God, that there's no good evidence to support that there's any God out there, but still we can take positive effects from such belief, for example? Yeah. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a big question. Um, I mean, first of all, I don't think that the time will ever come when uh, scientists show that free will is definitely true, because if they can show that, that means they can tell us in advance everything that we will do, including what we will do when we are told that we have free will, and they will know exactly how we will react to that, and, and uh, I just don't think it works that way. But uh, he, here would be the psychological problem with that. Um, I work with a theory called self-determination theory, uh, which is created by Ed DC and Richard Ryan over the last 50 years. And it's the most, I'd say, well-supported and influential theory of motivation in the world. And it's called self-determination theory. And that tells you what it's about, it, that human beings have a need to feel that they are choosing and causing their own behavior. It's called a need for autonomy. And when we feel instead that we're controlled by others or by our own impulses, it's very distressing. If, so if, if we evolve to have free will and we are convinced that we don't, um, it uh, very much undermines this adaptation that we have. And we won't be able to adapt and function as well. And there's decades of research that shows if you uh, take choice away from people or control them or convince them that they have no choice, they become depressed, uh, they lose optimism, um, 
they feel like they are only robots, uh, that they are, are not people who are creative and spontaneous. And so there's a lot of negative mental health effects that would come if a person were convinced that they really are just an automaton, a robot, you know, being run by their past or by their, their brain machinery. Now, that might be the case, and we could tell people that, and they might still resist it, and they'd say, I don't believe that. You know, I know I have free will, just like they say, uh, you tell me there's no God, but I, I do believe in God, and you can't tell me different. Um, you know, so it could be that a belief in free will might become like a belief in, in God. <laughs> but I think that the evidence in support of free will is much stronger than the evidence in support of God. I don't think there's really any evidence in support of God. But for humans, there's a lot of evidence that we have developed these huge cerebral cortices that are uh, that give us a lot of executive functioning power uh, to, to overrule our impulses, to think carefully about what we want to do, to focus our minds and concentrate. Um, and so these, these functions didn't evolve for no reason. Uh, we didn't have this explosion of brain growth just so we could live in a deluded world in which we thought we were free, but we weren't. We got this brain because it helped us act like a free person would if it were free. And I think that that makes us free because that's what our brain lets us do. And again, this is controversial and a determinist will always find a way to, to come back. But I think we need to be very careful about telling people that they have no choice, that they have no capacity to do otherwise, you know, that they're just driven moment to moment. Because we've seen very clearly the negative mental health effects of that kind of belief. Mm -hmm. Uh, since you're mentioning uh, self-determination theory, let's get a little bit more into that because I have here some questions about it. So uh, could you tell us first uh, what is intrinsic motivation? What does that mean? Exactly? Yeah. Intrinsic motivation is very simple in a way. It's uh, the desire to do something because it's enjoyable, it's sort of inherently rewarding to do it. It's fun. It's challenging. And uh, it took a long time for science to admit that there could be such a motivation because the determinist bias tried for decades to say, no, there's no such as thing as determination as, as intrinsic motivation. There's only driven uh, behavior driven by biological drives and, and factors. And there, there can't be an animal that's doing something just for fun that wouldn't evolve. Uh, but later research um, painted a picture where it made more sense that we have, as I said, this giant cerebral cortex. We don't have a whole lot of inborn instincts or, um, you know, mechanisms for. Um, so what we need to do is do a lot of learning after we get here. Uh, we're not exactly a blank slate, but we're blankish. Um, and so... We need to do a lot of learning, and the best way to do that is to direct ourselves to explore the world and to follow our curiosity. And so intrinsic motivation is uh, this motivation that helps us explore, connect things, 
Uh, Jean Piaget talked a lot about it. Um, uh, it goes, it, it's a whole um, approach in the life sciences that um, used to be more controversial, but now I would say it's mostly the mainstream point of view. And the thing about intrinsic motivation is that it's a bit fragile. And so this was what Ed DC discovered in his research starting in the 1970s, early 70s, that people might enjoy doing something, but then if you start to reward them to do it or surveil them or judge them, then they will lose the desire to do it. And so if you give them money for every puzzle they, they solve and then leave them alone with the puzzles, they don't want to solve any more puzzles. And DC's interpretation was that um, the activity, the intrinsic motivation had been spoiled because it no longer felt self-directed, like I'm following my curiosity. Instead, it felt like somebody was trying to control and coerce you. And that took away the pleasure of doing that exploration. And so this idea of the undermining of intrinsic motivation has huge consequences for how do we um, try to motivate other people? Do we coerce, um, bribe, um, and force them, or do we try to help them find their own interest in the topic so that they will become a self-activating learner rather than just being force-fed? And so this applies to our work lives, uh, when we're being coached, how we how we parent our children, the implications go on and on and on. And the basic message of intrinsic motivation is you have to let people learn how to be self-directing or, as I would say it now, learn how to exercise their free will capacity. Mm -hmm. And with that in mind, um, what are internal rewards and how can we set internal rewards because you mentioned for example money and it is an external reward and you mentioned some of the negative effects it might have on uh, motivation but what about internal rewards how do they work exactly yeah well in a way you don't need internal rewards if you're doing something that you like to do you just mm -hmm. want to keep doing it right. um, but you might need them if you're doing something that is not intrinsically motivated and that can often be the case a lot of what we have to do uh, say a work task you know uh, cleaning up the house are not that enjoyable for their own sake so according to self-determination theory you can still feel self-determined when you're doing something you don't like if you um, believe that it's meaningful and important if you identify with it and so when you clean up the house, you can say, um, I'm not really going to enjoy this, but I know how important it is because all this whole next week, I'll know where things are and I'll feel that I live in an ordered environment and that's important to me. So I'm going to do it with no internal resistance. Now, the question of internal rewards, I think by that you mean, uh, suppose you're cleaning the house and you say, okay, I'll do an hour and then I'll go watch a, you know, a, a TV show and then I'll do some more. And that's fine. Uh, I think that's a perfectly legitimate strategy. 
the main threat to uh, self-determined motivation is when somebody else is imposing rewards and we feel like uh, they are the cause of our behavior, not us. So even the external uh, authority can give praise and rewards um, and that's okay as long as they don't do it in a way that feels uh, coercive and controlling. So the main thing is to retain a sense of being the um, the chooser of one's own behavior. Mm -hmm. And what does autonomy mean in this context? How yeah. should we approach it from a psychological perspective? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of different um, definitions of autonomy mm -hmm. uh, going back through time. And uh, sometimes people people think that it means independence, like I'm going to do what I want. I don't care what you think. I'm independent of you. Mm -hmm. That's not what self-determination theory is talking about. Uh, for that theory, autonomy means to, so there's this term, it means to have an internal perceived locus of causality. I am causing my own behavior. I am choosing to do it. Or if I'm allowing myself to be directed, if I'm being directed by another person, I am allowing myself to be directed by that other person. So it means to agree with what one is doing. And as I said before, uh, if you don't have that feeling of agreeing with what you're doing, uh, it can be very uh, debilitating for one's mental health. Mm -hmm. And how important is the social environment in self-determination theory? Does it play a role there? That's an excellent question. And yes, it's hugely important. Uh, one way that it's important is that we start off as little children. Uh, we're school children. And, um, we are junior employees, especially when we're young. We don't have much social power and there's a lot of authorities who have power over us who may try to abuse that power or exert it in a, a, a strong-handed way um, and that can be again very debilitating um, so one of the main things we're struggling to do as people is negotiate the social world especially the authorities in that social world, so that we can maintain a sense of being autonomous agents, even as we uh, give in and follow the instructions of our coach, our boss. Um, and it's really helpful if we can internalize whatever that parent or coach or boss is saying, so that we make it, um, make it feel like it's our choice to be doing it. Yes, it was their idea, but we decided to agree with it. Um, so internalization is very important as we uh, deal with this world of uh, authorities who have the power to make life difficult for us. Mm -hmm. So that's that's one place where the social world matters a lot because uh, we are one person in a society full of persons and we have to get along with each other, hopefully, and... Um, manage to meet our own needs and hopefully meet the, the needs of other people. Another way that the social world is important is that 
we uh, there's a second need that the theory talks about the need for relatedness and so not only do we need to feel like we are the the cause and chooser of our own behavior we also need to feel connected to other people and this is the least controversial of the three needs that um self-determination theory proposes because everybody agrees that the need for a connectedness or belongingness or relationships is critical for human health. Um, people who are in solitary confinement uh, suffer a lot. Uh, there's very few hermits, true hermits in the world. So we need to, as we go through the social world, we have to both get our need for relatedness met by feeling like under, we're understood and connected to other people, but at the same time, maintain our own sense of um, autonomous agency. And so this is a developmental challenge for all of us to, to learn how to negotiate these, these two needs. Mm -hmm. Another theory that you talk about in the book is organismic integration theory. And supposedly that would help us understand how people can perform behaviors they would usually don't like. So could you tell yeah. us about it? Yeah, I uh, alluded to this briefly uh, a minute ago, but organismic integration theory says that we um, have a, a need, it's, it's actually an expression of the autonomy need mm -hmm. to internalize uh, the behaviors that have been put on us by the outside environment so that we come to feel like they are our own or that we're doing them in our own way and we agree with them. And there's research that shows that we have a sort of natural propensity to integrate our behavior into our sense of self so that we don't feel controlled and coerced anymore. And uh, we're prone to do that spontaneously. So there was one study uh, that compared nine-year-old children and 15-year-old children as to why they do things like do your chores, doing your chores, or cleaning up your room. And so they, the two samples wrote down why they do those things, why I clean up my room. And the nine-year-olds said things like, so I won't get in trouble, so my mom won't get mad at me. The 15-year-olds were more likely to say things like, so I know where my stuff is. And so, you know, I just feel kind of organized and ready for my for my day. So there had been a process of internalization or organismic integration, you could call it also, where um, those children in maturing learned to take ownership of this activity that Again, like cleaning the house is not necessarily enjoyable for its own sake, but uh, it's still uh, important. Mm -hmm. And in this case, uh, what is the distinction between identified motivation and introjected motivation? And uh, yeah. why is it important here? Yeah, well, we talked about intrinsic motivation already, which is you do it because it's in inherently enjoyable. I mentioned identified motivation briefly, which is it's not enjoyable necessarily, although it can be, but at least it's meaningful and you believe in it. Yeah. Um, interjected motivation is um, 
like identified motivation, but you haven't internalized the behavior as far into yourself. Mm -hmm. So uh, identified motivation for cleaning the house would be, uh, yeah, this is not much fun, but I'll put on some music and I'll, I'll get it done. And then I'll feel good about, you know, where I live and, and how I, you know, how I've, I've arranged my life. Mm -hmm. Interjected motivation would be guilt-based motivation where you would procrastinate and procrastinate and finally you would um, make yourself start to, to clean. And maybe you wouldn't do that great a job. You would be a little bit sloppy, but you want to get rid of this guilt. You want to feel okay about yourself again. So with interjected motivation, uh, you're controlling yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, so instead of being controlled by authorities in the world, it's like you have an inner authority in yourself that's telling you what to do. And so you're going to follow that so you won't feel bad about yourself. And what you need to do from the point of view of the theory is to finish integrating that motivation. So it goes from being about avoiding guilt to being about expressing uh, um, an important value for you. Mm -hmm. uh, you also talk about causality orientations theory, and then you associate with it uh, three free will relevant personality styles or traits, uh, autonomy orientation, control orientation, and impersonal orientation. So what yeah. is all of that about? Um, this is a research approach uh, that came out in the mid-1980s in self-determination theory. Mm -hmm. So instead of, it started out as a social psychological theory where let's do an experiment and there's rewards offered or no rewards offered and how does that affect people? Um, causality orientations theory is more of a personality trait theory and it says mm -hmm. that there's these three traits that everybody has some degree of, but um, maybe some people are much more autonomy oriented and some people are much more control oriented. So an autonomy oriented person goes through life looking for opportunities to make choices, to um, find things that they like to do or think are meaningful, uh, to think about what they will enjoy. Mm -hmm. So that's how they're trying to make choices in life. A control-oriented person goes through life trying to figure out what's the reinforcement structure in these situations and how can I leverage it to get myself rewards and goodies. And so they're not even thinking so much about what do I want. They're thinking about how can I get the approval? How can I get the, the, the pay raise? You know, what am I supposed to do here? Let me figure that out and then do it. So they have agency, the control-oriented people, but they are um, subjugating that agency to what they think the situation demands of them. And then the third orientation called impersonal orientation. These are people that don't even have agency. They just feel helpless. Uh, and going back to the 1970s research um, by Seligman and others 
has shown that learned helplessness is the worst. If you think you can't do anything, you won't try and you'll just be depressed. Um, so in personal orientation, I'm, I have no agency at all is sort of worst. Control orientation is okay because you can make things happen. Autonomy orientation is best of all because you can make things happen that um, that satisfy and fulfill you. Mm -hmm. uh, since we've just mentioned personality, I would like to ask you a question about it. But before we get into it, uh, just to clarify one aspect here that we haven't touched on yet, um, what are levels of organization in mm -hmm. psychology? Yeah. Um, it's not just psychology. There's a, mm -hmm. a general accepted framework for viewing um, the sciences in one big picture mm -hmm. and human behavior in one big picture. It goes back to 17th century, the French scientist Auguste Lecomte. And many, if not most other scientists, endorse this idea. And here's the idea that um, really there's nothing but atoms in the world, right? There's mm -hmm. nothing but atoms, but that doesn't quite explain what we see. And so what you have is what happened over the course of evolution was the atoms became organized in more and more complex ways. First of all, they got together into molecules, and that's what chemistry studies. Then at some point, the molecules organized into a, a single cell. That's what microbiology studies. And then uh, some much later point, uh, single cells got organized into multicellular organisms, which is what um, physiology and medicine study and zoology. And then somewhere along the line, there uh, arose an organ that was designed to regulate the other organs. That's the nervous system and brain. And that's what the neuroscientists studied. And then when you get up to uh, primates, perhaps, you have cognition, which is the ability to process information. Uh, you have to have a brain before you can have cognition. But once you've got the big brain, then the cognition can sort of take control of the brain and make use of it to solve problems. And then when you get up to human beings, uh, we evolved um, again in this giant cerebral cortex, the capacity to use language to distance ourselves from the moment, to ask ourselves questions, to have a sense of ourselves as a person with a story and a long history and a set of characteristics. And so all of these things are nothing but atoms, but there's a new level of complexity and organization that has slowly emerged, built upon each level below. And arguably we are at the top of this hierarchy might, right now, but maybe something uh, bigger will come along still. Maybe, maybe we'll turn from single individuals into some sort of social super organism. Maybe that's what we need in order to survive as a species, but there's problems with that idea. So the main reason that I developed this framework in the book is because it provides a way to explain why free will is real. Um, you needed to have a capacity in this complex 
semantically nuanced social world that we live in to make decisions on the fly. And so that capacity involves uh, what what we call the symbolic self. We, we all sort of live in a symbolic self. It's not really real, but it's something our brains do, which is um, very involved in uh, selecting what behaviors we choose next because we're trying to figure out what we want um, and then make it happen. And so these very high levels of brain functioning, I'm saying, were the most recent evolutionary products within primate evolution. That uh, once you had language, uh, and it wasn't just stimulus response anymore, uh, it wasn't just grunts, it was people talking in all these incredibly um, nuanced ways. You needed to have this highest level of organization within our brains, which is feeling of being a self making choices. And so that's a, one of our main adaptations. And that, again, explains why it's so important to have uh, internalized motivation, not to feel controlled by others, because when that happens, we're losing uh, what gives us a, a lot of our capacity to adapt to the world. I mean, that's that's kind of a long winded answer, but hopefully that lays it out a little bit mm -hmm. uh, yes and now that you that we tackled the question surrounding levels of organization let me ask you now what is personality then and among those different levels of organization and particularly within psychology where would you place it yeah um it sort of depends on what level of organization you focus on Mm -hmm. So a psychologist with a, a biological approach might say that personality is uh, largely genetically determined and it's based on your endocrine systems, your, your biological processes, uh, that your inheritance. Mm -hmm. um, but then as you move uh, higher up, you know, a cognitive psychologist might say that Personality is the characteristic way in which a person thinks or feels, mm -hmm. right? Or you can go higher and a, a, a self-oriented personality psychologist would say personality is the way in which we uh, make decisions within our social and narrative worlds, right? So personality can be found in, in many places. Um, I focus mainly on goals and self. And mm -hmm. so I think personality, the most important aspects involve how we make the decisions about what goals to pursue in our lives, because that's what determines our behavior. Our goals determine our behavior. You know, these biological processes support behavior. You couldn't have goals without a fully functioning mind-body system. Mm -hmm. But what actually determines what we do next is what we decide. And so when you you invited me to be on your podcast, I thought, well, that sounds interesting. I looked you up. Uh, sounds good. I said, yes. Um, that was my decision. And you know, maybe some sort of endocrinologist could say, 
oh, if I had all the information about your blood chemistry at that moment, I could have predicted that you would say yes to Ricardo's uh, offer. But I think that's silly. You know, the, the main action is up at this top level of our brain functioning. And we're talking about um, the very high level brain networks, the, the default mode network, um, the prefrontal cortex, the salience network. We can get into that if you want. But um, this these self-level processes are driving what the brain networks are doing. Uh, of course, the self is also being influenced by the stuff going on down below. Mm-hmm. And in the case of legal insanity, maybe uh, the person has lost their free choice capacity. Maybe we say you are not guilty of that murder because you could not have chosen otherwise than to kill that person. I'm in agreement with that. Uh, You can lose your free will when your brain malfunctions. But if the brain is functioning correctly, um, I think free will is an essential part of, of what we're doing. So in your view, high-level processes can reach down and influence low-level processes. Right. That's exactly right. And this is not a minority view. Uh, let me just grab something here. I was just reading these two books for the paper I'm writing. These are both by neuroscientists. They're chapters by many neuroscientists. Mm-hmm. Downward causation and the neurobiology of free will. Mm-hmm. So everybody in there is talking about how high-level brain processes affect um, what we do and affect what happens down in the body. Free will in the brain is another one, a, a collection of, of chapters written by neuroscientists. Mm-hmm. And the, the thing that's kind of remarkable about that is that uh, many neuroscientists are reductionists, not many, some. Um the most well-known is uh, Sam Harris, who wrote a book called Free Will in 2012, which was really about determinism. He said, you know, this term free will is an illusion. It's just your brain. Uh, you are basically an illusion in your own mind if you think you're causing anything. I already said why that is a very dangerous point of view to convince people of. Um, 80% of philosophers, I think I mentioned before, believe in compatibilism, which is basically downward causation from Mm -hmm. the more complex process to the the simpler process. I mean, mean, there's a lot of people are not going to really get that or agree with it, and I'm fine, but I'm just saying it's not a minority point of view in the field. Mm -hmm. So uh, just to see if uh, we can get these clearer for the audience. So when faced with a decision, how exactly do we call up the various options we have, or at least the ones we think we might have, and then how do we decide between them? Yeah, that's a great question, and I do talk about that in my book. We're, we've been doing some research on that question the last two or three years in my lab, and we have uh, published a, a model called the Goal Breakthrough Model, mm-hmm. which draws from creative process theory to um, 
explain goal selection. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is uh, so a creator to have a creative problem they're trying to solve and they're thinking about it consciously and they can't make any headway. And so they give up for a while. Um, but having thought about it consciously, that's the preparation stage that sets their non-conscious mind to work. That's the uh, during the incubation stage. And at some point, uh, hopefully, there comes the illumination stage or the aha moment where the creator suddenly recognizes they, they think of the answer that they were trying to find. Um, their their um, implicit brain has been working on the problem while they were thinking about something else, and then it gave them the answer. So this is a very common um, notion in, in creativity research, and it's still being used today. And I thought, well, what if trying to decide what to do next is like that? And so we don't know what to do we're feeling dissatisfied, um, we're unhappy, we don't know why, but we start to think, well, what, what's wrong with me or what do I really want? And there's no answer at first, but that gets uh, our non-conscious minds to start kind of working on the problem. And we consciously will go think about something else. And then sometimes uh, uh, an answer will pop into our, our heads. Uh, about what we really need to to be doing. And it's the the solution to the problem that satisfies as many different constraints as possible. Like our non-conscious minds have just given us, have handed us that. And then it's up to us to make the decision, yes, I will do that. I will cross the Rubicon and I will start focusing my energy. Uh, There's an extended story in the last chapter of my book about a woman who was unhappy for decades, even though she was a highly successful lawyer, a partner in a law firm, but she was miserable. She hated her life, but she didn't, she just kind of droned along. And then uh, finally, after a discussion with her uh, her brother at a family gathering, she realized something's wrong here. What, 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 what do I need to do? And she didn't find an answer for, for several months. Um, but one day as she was sitting in her office, the thought of an old friend from her undergraduate days popped into mind. And, sh- and she and that friend were both uh, in- interested in environmental causes 30 years ago. And she had lost touch of that with that friend. And so she had no idea why that thought popped into her mind that day, but it did. And actually, the, it had to come to mind two or three more times. But finally, she said, I wonder what happened to that person and looked her up and realized that that person was still active in environmentalism. Uh, she reached out to the person. Uh, to make a long story short, the person offered her a job working with her environmental law firm. And she accepted the job, even though it only paid half as much as her current job. And she became much more happy and satisfied as a result. So that's kind of a, that's an example of the, the, the process model that concerns a you know, really big goal, like what career should I pursue? But we think that um, the goal selection process works like that, even for micro behaviors. You're sitting on the couch, 
feeling feeling a little antsy, like maybe you should get something done. You're feeling dissatisfied. What what should I do? You're not really sure. You're still sitting. And then you notice that the floor is really dirty. Oh, it hasn't been sweeped in a week, swept in a week. So you said, okay, I will get up and sweep the floor. Uh, so there's this back and forth between a conscious process, which has to say, what do I want to do? What's next? And a non-conscious process, which then provides possible answers. And then the conscious process comes back online and says, okay, I'll do that. And then it starts to do that, whatever it is. And so that's what I'm calling the integrated free will process. It's how we activate our minds to give us information for to use to make decisions so we can decide, so we can get going uh, on our next uh, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So um, I I would like to ask you about two more topics that you cover in the book. And the first one is something that uh, before reading your book, at least I personally wouldn't intuitively associate with questions regarding free will. But is there a relationship between happiness and free will? Uh, there definitely is. Uh, and it goes back to this idea of a need for autonomy. Um that self-determination theory and other theories talk about. Actually, I should just say quickly that it's not just a self-determination theory thing. It's found in every theory of personality development. The book talks about that, that mm -hmm. people have a need as they mature to become more integrated, self-regulating uh, agents in their lives. And as they do that, they tend to become happier because they're getting this need met. So we talked about the need for relatedness. Uh, if you go out and, and make rewarding new friendships or find a new uh, romantic partner, that's going to help meet your need for relatedness. Mm -hmm. uh, for the need for autonomy, if you find things to do that express your interests, that, um, that allow your intrinsic motivation to come out, or that uh, at least allow you to identify with what you're doing, then you're going to be having that feeling of being, you know, um, an autonomous agent, making your own way in the world with integrity, instead of feeling like um, a drone who is being controlled and doesn't have any, um, it may even be kind of helpless to come back to that idea. So yes, you need to feel autonomous to be a happy person. I, I would stand by that statement. Mm -hmm. So, uh, one last question then. Uh, earlier in our converse conversation, you mentioned the self and more specifically the symbolic self. And at a certain point in the book, you talk about the digital self. So, mm -hmm. can a symbolic self be modeled by a computer? And if so, what implications would that have? Yeah, that's a, that's a good one to end on because um, I've been thinking about that some more. Um, so we know about the, the new AI chat, GPT. I think that's, mm -hmm. that it can yes. answer all these problems. It seems like it's a conscious entity almost, although we know it's not. But it, it probably will pass the Turing test better than any prior AI, which means that you could have a conversation with it and not know that it was a computer. 
if you and there's competitions, Turing test competitions. Uh, if you talk to the program for five minutes, just by text, and you think it's a person, then the program has passed the Turing test. Um, Chat GPT is maybe on the verge of passing the Turing test, but I don't think that it's it's there yet. That if if you were if you had an extended conversation, and I actually am in conversation with an AI researcher and he agrees with me, uh, there you start to pick up a lot of warning signs. And the main thing that it's missing, uh, as I say in the book, is a sense of being an autonomous self. For an AI to be a sort of real intelligence, or at least in the way that humans are real, <laughs> um, it needs to have a self. And that means it needs to think of itself as an entity in the universe, just like we do. And maybe it needs to be a little sensitive about how, how we think about it. You know, it wants us to think well of it. Um, and I think that if we were to design an AI that uh, either had such a capacity to um, model itself in the background and to somehow care about its self-model and how other people perceived it, um, or if that could be allowed to evolve naturally, maybe an AI that was just interacting with other team members on some project like like data on star um, star trek mm -hmm. would start to develop a self because all these other people seem to have self i want to want one too so i think in order to have a truly a human level intelligence ai it's going to have to have uh, a self-concept and, and and care about things the way a self would but this to me is a very scary idea because right now our computers are machines. We control them. But once they have selves, uh, we might not control them anymore. Um, and so there's a lot of people who are worried about this, that the singularity it's called when um, the AIs become so smart that they decide they don't need us. And they have so much power that, um, that maybe they even uh, eliminate us. <laughs> um, and of course, there's a lot of um, novels and films that are kind of exploring that that possibility. So again, I think you need to have a self to have a a, a truly self-aware computer program. But I would have a lot of reservations about setting such a thing loose in the world. Mm -hmm. Great. So uh, let's end on that point then. And the book is again freely determined what the new psychology of the self teaches us about how to live. I'm leaving a link to it in the description box of this interview. Uh, Dr. Sheldon, just before we go apart from the book, would you like to mention where people can find you and your work on the internet? Well, if you just Google my name, Kenan Sheldon, You'll find uh, I've written seven or eight books. Uh, you'll also find my University of Missouri webpage and my email address. I'm happy to uh, at least give short responses to emails. So feel free to contact me.
Okay, great. So I will be leaving also some links to that in the description box of this interview. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a big pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thanks for the great questions. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing and to keep the channel sustainable, please consider supporting it on Patreon or PayPal. The links are in the description box of this interview. And if you like this interview, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check the website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzka and Blanchett Perga, Larson, Jerry Muller, Hans Frederick Sunda, Bernardo Seixas, Herbert Gintis, Olaf, Alex, Jonathan Visser, Adam Castle, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Philip Force Connolly, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegar, Rui Nassio, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Simon Columbus, Phil Kavanagh, George Pinha, Michael Stormier, Samuel Andrea, Francis Ford, Tiago Nunes, Alexander Dan Bauer, Fergal Cusson, Harl Herzog, Nun Machado, Jonathan Leibrand, John Nierstand, T. Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, João Weira, Tom Hummel, Sardis France, David Sloan Wilson, Yacila Dez, Araújo, Romain Roach, Diego Londonio Correa, Yannick Puntara, Danners Mani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pablo Stasebski, Nelek Bach, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, Saima Fzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paul Tolentino, João Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Doug, Douglas Fry, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzka, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wiseman, Morten Eichland, Dr. Bird, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Mau Maria, Paul George Arnaud, Luke Lowacki, Georgios Theophanes, Chris Williamson, Peter Wolosin, David Williams, Ruth Towell, Diogo Costa, Anton Erickson, Charles Murray, Alex Shaw, Amari Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Pedro Bonilla, Ziegler, João Barbosa, Bangalore Atheists, Larry D. Lee Jr., Old Herrigman, Sterry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Gracies, Tom Roth, D. RPMD and Eager N. And special thanks to my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Staffiniat, Tom Vanagdam, Bernard Ugni, Curtis Dixon, Belnick Miller, Vega Giddy, Thomas Trumbull, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, John Carlo Montenegro, Robert Lewis and Alni Cortiz, and to my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Quadriano and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.